open our Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, and then we are going to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians 7, and then we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 1, I only want us to focus on that A clause, or the first half of verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, just, just want you to notice that very often people had questions and concerns about specific issues, and Paul addressed them, some of them in this letter, 1 Corinthians 7 and 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I'll read that again. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. First Peter 3.15 Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we, we, we've called this be ready to answer, but essentially this is questions and answers on Bible topics. This will be part two. Let's have a word of prayer. Again, Father, we're grateful to be able to gather on a Tuesday. It's a wonderful opportunity to look into the Word of God. We are humbled by the fact that you loved us so much that you gave your Son, brought the knowledge of salvation to our homes. We pray tonight as we look into the Scriptures that you would give us wisdom. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, as long as there's been, a, there's been scripture, people have always had questions about different topics. You can't have this much scripture and not have some kind of confusion or misunderstanding or diverse interpretations of single verses of scripture, single passages of scripture. And it's always good to be able Try to look into the scripture and find some answers to questions that people have. Of course, these questions may not be difficult for you, but nevertheless, they are questions that people have from time to time. And the first one I want to look at right now is the question, should Christians sue their brethren? Should a Christian take another Christian to court? What does the Bible say about that? We can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And start with verse number one. Should Christians sue other Christians? Look at verse one. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Don't you know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to 
law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud that. Essentially, you do it to your own brothers, sisters in Christ. Well, when we start with the question, should a Christian sue another Christian, then we, we, we have to wonder, who is Paul addressing this epistle to? Is he talking to just Christians in Corinth, in the church? Is he just talking to Christians in the city of Corinth? Or is he addressing this issue to the greater body of believers around the world? We have the answer in chapter 1, verse number 2. It says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So this is applicable to believers all over the earth, what we're talking about right now. And the answer to the question whether or not a Christian should sue another Christian is going to be determined very often about by whether or not you believe the other party is truly a Christian. Most people who are in court feel like they're in court because of unchristian activity. So it's going to be on the basis of what do you believe about a person's spiritual condition? And then also what kind of law has been broken? Because if you're talking about murder, church council, that's probably not something they're going to deal with. If you're talking about some kind of abduction or sexual assault, that may not very well be something that's going to be just handled in church. In fact, we have seen in recent times that when there have been abuse cases in different churches where bad stuff has happened, You've seen how people have handled that. They just kind of swept it under the rug and tried to go on like it didn't happen. In ancient Rome and throughout the Mediterranean region, the Roman legal system was vast. There were a number of different laws. and It didn't matter where it was. You could have been in India, northern Africa, or parts of Europe. The Romans had a system that worked in a variety of different countries. <clears throat> Well, I I do want to say that there are circumstances, though, like what Paul is addressing here, where it just seems like Christians ought to be able to police themselves. Now, notice verse 1, he says, you go before the unjust. And then verse 6, you go before the unbelievers. So there are obviously certain matters that Paul believes should be able to be arbitrated and adjudicated by people who know God. Because when Christians go to court, against one another in front, in front of an atheist judge, a secular judge, a Muslim judge, a Buddhist judge, it does not make God look good. It makes it look like Christians do not have any kind of discipline or any kind of wisdom on their own. <clears throat> so this is why Paul says, it, it just seems to me like there ought to be somebody in that church who's wise enough to be able to listen to do, two different parties or three different parties and objectively, come to a favorable answer or some kind of uh, conclusion re- regarding this. Now, I, I know this as a, as a personal uh, matter, as, a, as an experiment. I've done this several times. When, when I've had uh, issues where you've got people who 
are opposed to one another. Sometimes I've had to get uh, elders involved and sit down with opposing parties and they're going at it with one another. Nobody's talking to one another, can't do communion and all of that kind of a thing. And, and you, you have to work to reconcile that. And you've got to be able to do it without showing favor to certain people. You know, in, in a local church, <clears throat> you would think that you could have elders and leaders in a church that would have the wisdom to be able to handle matters like when someone has robbed another believer of money or somebody has defrauded somebody of money. But you know as well as I do, that's not always the case. Paul says that you should set those to judge who are least esteemed. In the Greek, that's talking about people who do not have a lot of power and authority. These are not the influential people or the affluent people. Most Christians who have some kind of financial means or have some kind of authority and power, they do not want someone that they think is beneath them to be judging their matters. And this is why you rarely see these kind of things take place in a church. But even Jesus said, if a brother has a problem with another brother, you go to him. If he listens to you, that's good. If he doesn't, you take a witness. If he doesn't, then you bring it before the church. You bring it for the church, and they still don't want to do right. Then he says, then you treat them like a publican, ancient tax collector. They weren't loved by anybody. He said, now, now they're, they're, they're on the outside. So here's what, what I think when it comes to situations where believers have issues with other believers and you're dealing with the breakage of some kind of civil law or criminal law. Well, depending on what it is, it may be out of the preacher's hand or the church's hand anyway. If somebody does something with a, with a kid they're not supposed to do, it's got to be reported nowadays, otherwise everybody will be in jail. That's just the, the law of the land. But when it's some kind of squabble that requires a believer to get involved and say, here's what scripture says, then we should all be willing to acquiesce and, and sit and listen and present our case and then, and then uh, allow the mind of God to be revealed from scripture. Usually by the time two people are suing each other, everybody's so angry and upset that no matter how a person comes to a reasonable conclusion. The one who feels like it's not coming down in their favor, they're going to be angry anyhow. I've seen that happen too. But worst case scenarios that I've been involved with, I've had to explain to people, this is a bad issue. I had one, uh, one person one time uh, got so mad at a girl. <clears throat> I said, girl, they were all women. They were in their 50s. It was just, uh, just a revolt was breaking out. I'd, this one woman told this other woman, I'm so mad at you. We're sitting in the elders meeting. She said, I'm so mad at, you, mad at you. I just want to punch you in the face. I said, oh, no, we don't want to do that. I said, we, we don't want pastor being here tackling anybody. We don't, we, we don't want to do that. But, but I did say this with, with some, some other elders there. I said, look, th- this is what's going to happen. Either we're going to reconcile this or somebody's going to leave. Because you're not going to stay here with that spirit in the church. We either fix it or somebody's got to go. And, and, and fortunately, we were able to, to, to work and, and, and reconcile. Most people who are Christians that really love God and have a good heart, they, they do not want to have to leave and go look for another fellowship because they couldn't get along with somebody. They'd rather just humble themselves. And that's the, that's the proper way, I think, too. And that leads into this next question. And you can go to Matthew 18. 
So here's the next question. What should forgiveness look like in daily practice? Forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading verse 21. I'm not going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, though I encourage you to read that far. I'm going to read a few verses here. Matthew 18, verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And When he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. Now, a talent is made up of... Uh, they called a, a, a denarius, about 16 cents. So 16 cent being divisible through these 10,000 talents and denarius. If, if, if we do the math, we're going we're gonna to end up somewhere with about close to $1,000 in, in ancient times. That's what, it, what it's going to be. But he says, for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me. I'll pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Now, the man that was forgiven then turned around and went and found somebody that owed him a smaller amount of money. And told him, pay me or I'm going to put you in jail. And uh, he grabbed him by the throat. And started choking him and put him in jail. So Some of the other people went back and told the king, the man you forgave went and found somebody else and he wouldn't forgive him. And he put him in jail. So the king called the other man back. And he got in trouble with the king. Now, now here's the issue. Peter's question is a question that many people ask all the time. How, how, how often or how long do I have to put up with this? Why, how many times do I have to forgive this person? Because we like to think there's a limit to... You know, our ability to to forgive. In fact, we'll we'll use phrases like this. That is the straw that has broken the camel's back. See, well, there wasn't one that could break the camel's back in with, with Jesus. That's why he went to Calvary, you know. But for us, we all have our limits. And, and Peter, he thought he was being quite generous. Peter, he, he said, now, if somebody who's a brother crosses me seven times, that's pretty good, Lord. Seven times, if I forgive him seven times, is that pretty good? And the Lord said, no, you, you're not, you got to multiply that number. Let's go, instead of seven, let's think of 490 times. If somebody crosses you 490 times, you've got to be willing to say 490 times, I forgive you. That gives me wide latitude to get on your last nerve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You, you may not want to love me, but you have to love me if you want to go to heaven. That's Bible. That's, that's just the way it is. So God says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. <clears throat> and the kingdom of heaven, of course, represents God. It represents the, the rule and the rulership of God. And it represents the people of the king. So if we have an understanding of what Christians are like, Christians, by their behavior, they should exhibit the characteristics of God. And this is why he gives the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like somebody who was taking account of all of his servants. He said, look at the books and find out who owes me a lot of money. He said, we have found somebody 
that owes a whole lot of money. So they look at the name. The name says Mike Tuman. He owes a whole lot of money. So Mike comes before the king and the king says, look, I'd prefer if you give me all of my money right now. Give it up. Empty the pockets. I want the money right now. And, 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 and Mike said, wait a minute now. Hold on. I've got, I've got bills. I've got things I've got to, got to take care of. And, and so the king, he calls for the soldiers and the people to come put them in debtor's prison. And then right at that moment, that's when Mike falls down and, and, and Mike says, well, just be patient with me. I'll pay you everything. And the king was moved with compassion and he forgave him. Well, th- this, this is the story of our relationship with God. Because we had amassed a large, a very large amount of sin that had been placed in our account. And we were against God. That sin was hostile to God. But yet the Lord, rather than just simply casting us into hell or putting us into one problem or another, one day we said to the Lord, Father, forgive me. What does God do? He forgives. And Paul says in Corinthians, with the same compassion that God has shown to you, show that compassion to somebody else. So then now that you're forgiven and you're a Christian, then you should be able to exhibit that same kind of forgiveness to somebody else. You should not go out and in your, you know, enjoying the mercy and loving kindness of of the king and the Lord, you go out and find somebody who owes you a minuscule amount in comparison with what you owed, and then you grab them by the throat. I asked somebody last night, I said, let's suppose somebody owed you $300,000. Because see, in here, it, it, it says the man, he went and he grabbed the man by the throat and said, give me my money. I said, let's suppose somebody owed you $300,000 and they decided they weren't going to pay you back. I said, what would you do? And a couple of people told me, and said, well, Pastor, I think that's a, that's a throat-grabbing moment there. This, <laughs> he said, how can you not get angry and want to grab somebody? I said, well, you're right, you're right. That, that's, that's, that's not a good, a good thing. But, but here, here's what, here's what the, the parable is teaching in regard to that. This is a spiritual principle. If you've been forgiven a lot of sin, be willing to forgive somebody else their sin. Christians can be judgmental when we forget what it is that God forgave us of. Now, I realize there are people who will say, I've never been bad at any time in my life, and I've always been nice, and I never drank, I never smoked, and, and I never did drugs, I never cussed, I, I never ran around with different guys and gals, I never did this, I never did that. And we can create our own litany of, of things, and we can, we can put it on this list, but remember, all of that without God is still self-righteousness. It's real. It's, it's still personal morality and you trust in your own goodness and you honestly believe your own goodness gives you the right to say to God, I'm good enough to go to heaven. Well, no, there, there, there are people who've never gotten into what we would consider real trouble in their lifetime and they're on their hell. They're on their way to hell every bit as much as somebody who's who's overdosing on drugs every day and don't know God. Or somebody that's blaspheming God. So our role as Christians then is to recognize that since I've been forgiven, and I, and I know I've got a lot of stuff back there up under that blood that I don't want anybody to know about. 
When I come in contact with other people who are in need of forgiveness also, and they're, they're wanting to make uh, use of the same blood of Jesus that I use, I realize I've got to be compassionate towards them. Because the scripture says that the one that is forgiven much loves much. So when you think sometimes about where God has brought you from and the things that he's forgiven you, it helps you to forgive other people. Yeah. We, we, we like to think sometimes that there are people who come into this world like Jesus was, full of the Holy Ghost and without sin. But the, the humans aren't making any folks like that anymore. I can show you that. That was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. The, uh, what, what comes into this world now is born in sin and shaped in iniquity, people will say. But let's go now to Genesis chapter 14, the first book of the Bible. And you need to see these verses for yourself. Because These verses will help you to understand how to be good stewards over your finances. Genesis 14. Now, starting with. Oh, let me begin with verse number. Verse number 10. This was about the battle of the kings of the east. And it speaks of the valley of Sidim. It was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Now, the story of Abraham's life is this. He was living in the land of Ur with his family. God told him to leave. When he left, he took his wife. He took his nephew, Lot, and his family. So they all went northward up to what we would look, look at on the map today as southeastern Turkey. Once they got up to the area of Haran, they then came south because he had a lot of cattle. So he had to follow the river. With all this cattle, you've got to be able to... To, to find pasture land for him. So he came into the promised land, had a, a period of famine, and then the multiplication of the cattle was so great, the blessing of God was on him and his nephew Lot so well that Abraham and Lot decided to go their separate ways. Lot chose to go to the well-watered land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went the exact opposite direction. Sometime later, the kings of the east came to Sodom and Gomorrah, had the fight and everything that was going on, and they took Abram's, Abram's nephew captive. So this is why Abram goes on the warpath. He and 318 armed servants, according to verse 14, and they pursued these people to Dan. He divided himself up in three companies. That's 106 companies each. And he brought back, verse 16, all the goods and his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So verse 17, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. Verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought bread and wine. Here's your first picture of communion. Here's your first picture of communion. 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram. Of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which delivered your enemies into your hand. Verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and you take the goods to yourself. So you keep the material things. Abram said, I've lift up my hand to the Lord the Most High. 
the possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take even a thread to a shoe latchet. And I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say I've made Abraham rich, save only that which the young men have taken. Okay, so here is what we have here. This man is blessed because he retrieved his nephew and all the goods. And Abram goes out of his way to ensure that he would not hold on to anything because he did not want man to say, I enriched you. He only wanted the blessing of God. But with everything that he received, look at the last sentence of verse 20. And he gave him tithes of all. Now, tithe is how much? 10%. Tithe is 10%. Let's go to chapter 28. We want to look at Abraham's grandson. Jacob was a man who was not the most honest, okay? Jacob could sell igloos in the Sahara Desert. Yeah, he, 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 he was good. He, 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 would, he could have marketed the bridge to nowhere in a lot of different places, and people would have said, you know what, that's a pretty good investment. Yeah. But he crossed his brother Esau, and once Esau's eyes were opened to understand that he had been deceived, In his heart, he said, I'm going to kill my brother. So Rebecca, Jacob's mother, she schemed to get Jacob out of the country. She's the one to help scheme to help him get the blessing in the first place. But now she's scheming to get him out of the country. And if you look at verse 18 in Genesis 28, Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had for his pillow. He erected a pillar there. This is where he came to spend the night as he was headed towards Iraq. He named the place Bethel, or Bethel, house of God. And, and it's, uh, the heart, the human heart becomes an idol factory by the time a child is six or seven years old. They can just fabricate all kinds of things, you see. That's important to know. What does forgiveness look like in daily practice? It looks like someone who wants to release other people from debt, from, from, from the bondage of, of being angry with them because of unforgiveness. So don't live like that. Don't permit your life to become a prison in which you're held by bitterness. If God has forgiven you, and you believe that, forgive other people. That's it. It's, it's not difficult at all. You say, well, I, I struggle to forgive, possibly. And, and you may be in a condition in your life when you come through certain things where you're not ready to forgive. But that doesn't have anything to do with God. That's on your part. When Jesus climbed up on that cross with, with nails going through his hands, with a hole in his side and nails in his feet, and people walking back and forth mocking him, saying, who is he calling on? He acts like he's calling on Elijah or somebody. And people laughing at him. And Roman soldiers gambling over his garments. And he's up there humiliated in the sense that he's somewhat naked and scantily clad and and naked to his shame in front of all the people, and yet he could say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Well, then here's the question. Was he ready to forgive? Is it really a matter of readiness? Or is it a matter of the will? You choose 
whether or not you want to forgive, or you choose to be a grudge bearer. It's up to you. It's, it's, it's not a matter of, of, of somebody forcing you down that road. And you can think of the, the most hideous kinds of things that could happen to somebody, and I'm going to come right back to pointing to that cross. Sexual abuse, that cross. Somebody cussed me out, that cross. Somebody stole from me, that cross. I had a farmer one time tell me, he said, I had a, a man made me so mad, he said a, a farmer asked me if he could use my combine during harvest. And he, and, and he knew I was a nice guy, and I, and I told him he could use it. And he said, I let him use the combine, and he said he took the combine on his property, did the harvest, and then drove the combine to the corner of his field and left it there. Never even brought it back. And then he said that he called the man and asked him, was he going to bring it back? And the guy said, I'm done with it, I'm leaving it right there. And he said, do, do, do you think I'm, I'm supposed to forgive him? I said, I think you already know the answer to the question. You wouldn't be asking if you did not already know. Of course, you're going to have to forgive him. I said, wouldn't that be a terrible thing to be in bondage over a piece of equipment? Spend the rest of your life angry over something that can just easily be moved by you. Yeah. Let's look at another question here. So we've talked about should Christians sue their brethren. Second thing is should, what does forgiveness look like in daily practice? Here's a, another one. Are Christians obliged to pay tithes and to give offerings in the New Testament? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a good question there. I'm telling you, that's a good one. Okay, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. The complaint given against tithing in the New Testament usually is this. Tithing is a practice that is found in the Mosaic law or the law of Moses. But Galatians 5, let's look at verse number... Excuse me. It's not five. It's Galatians three, verse number six. Galatians three, verse number six. Even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So we ourselves are considered by Paul over and over again to be children of Abraham because we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Abraham stepped out in faith and believed God, the scripture says that righteousness was credited to his account. So not because he signed any piece of paper or attended any synagogue because they didn't exist at the time that he he was alive. This man was made right with God in obedience to the word of God. And he didn't have a Bible. He just simply had a voice to obey. Scripture says that we ourselves are just like him. Notice verse number uh, 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So people will tell you, tithing was in the law. Jesus delivered us from the curse of the law. So we're not supposed to tithe today. Verse 20, and he made a promise or vowed a vow. He said, God, if you be with me and keep me in the way that I go and will give 
me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God and this stone, which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the what? Tenth. So you have this in Abraham in his relationship with Melchizedek. And then you have this in his grandchild, Jacob. So, you know, Isaac knew about it also. Now, now here's my point. All of these people lived several hundreds of years before Moses. So tithing didn't begin with with the law of Moses. Tithing did not begin with the Ten Commandments. Tithing did not begin with Moses uh, writing down the laws of the Levites. Tithing began all the way back there several centuries with Abraham. The scripture says we're children of Abraham by faith. So we don't tithe because we're under the law. We tithe because we're of the seed of Abraham. Now, if we go to Hebrews chapter 7 quickly. See, I know there's a lot of scripture, but this, this, is, this is some stuff that you do need to know when you have conversation with people. When we come to Hebrews 7... I'm not going to read, read these verses, but verses 21, verses 21 through 28 explain to us that Jesus is the new Melchizedek. We're the seed of Abraham, and Jesus is our new Melchizedek. Notice in chapter 7, verse uh Verse 21, the last sentence, it's quoting from the psalm. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then it starts teaching that Jesus is the one after the order of Melchizedek. Because in the Old Testament, we don't have a record of Melchizedek's parents. So it's like he came on the scene and always existed. And, and Paul is saying in Hebrews that in the sense that Melchizedek in Genesis seemed to be eternal, Without descent, without parentage, Jesus himself is the eternal one who's without beginning and without end. And that's why it says here in verse 27, who needs not daily as those priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's sin. That's what the Levites did. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But it goes on to say that uh, Christ is made the son who is consecrated Forevermore. So the reason Christians tithe today and have continually tithed is because Jesus is our Melchizedek. He's our heavenly priest. We're of the seed of Abraham. Now we know Jesus believed in tithes and offerings because in Matthew 23, verse 23, he says to the Pharisees, you should have. He says to them, you pay tithes of these different spices but you omit the weightier matters of the law, like love, kindness, and justice. He says, these you should not have forgotten, nor should you have neglected the tithe. So even when Jesus was here, he believed in the tithe. So there are two things here. As a spiritual matter, we give tithes because Jesus is our Melchizedek, and we're the seed of Abraham. As a practical matter, we do tithes because Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 teach that if we don't tithe, we rob God. If we don't tithe, there won't be any meat in the storehouse. 
If we do tithe, God rebukes the devourer for our sakes. He opens the window of heaven. When we consider our finances and our monies, a dime out of every dollar goes to God. A dollar out of every $10 bill goes to God. A $10 bill out of every 100 goes to God. 100 out of every 1,000 goes to God. A 1,000 out of every 10,000 goes to God. I have found that most people have no problem at all tithing when you're only dealing with a dime. But it's when that money starts accumulating and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, then, then, then all of a sudden the palms start sweating, and, and when people having to write checks, they're starting to shake a little bit, and having convulsions and seizures are taking hold to them, and oh my God, what am I going to do? It, but, but look, when you're talking about God, whether it's $100,000 or a dime, it's all the same to him. It's a tenth. That's all it is. It, it's all it is. It's a tithe. It's nothing more, nothing less. So the, the tithe, of course, that immediately goes to God. <clears throat> but scripture also teaches about offerings. So we give offerings. When people's homes burn down and they need help, what do you do? You dig deep and you give what you can to be a blessing to somebody. If they're in your church, you really go out of your way to try to help somebody. When somebody has a, a, a uh, medical situation, and the bills are great, and, and they're needing a little bit of help, and people put together soup dinners and all these kinds of things to, to, to raise funds. What do people in the community do? They give offerings. You can call it donations, whatever you want. You give offerings towards the people. If it's, a, if it's a person in your church, what do people normally do? They dig deeper. They try to give a little bit more. That's just the way it works. That's how it works with you guys here in Mission. That's how... It works in every aspect of our lives. Now, now, then the question comes, okay, where does a person tithe? You tithe to the place you consider home. Your home, your church home, your, where, you're, where you're fed spiritually, your spiritual house. I'm sure that Jesus made sure, I'm sure that Jesus uh, entrusted that the disciples, the same way they paid taxes to Caesar, I guarantee they were taking care of that tithe in the house of God. Because every Jewish person had to pay a head tax at that temple. And, I, and if the scripture says that Jesus fulfilled all of the law, and I know he did, that means he could not have broken one jot or one tittle of what that law said under the old covenant. So you can better believe he was giving those tithes and those offerings the way he should. So that's the, the same way us as Christians. As long as we are on planet earth and Jesus is in heaven as our spiritual Melchizedek and we're the seed of David, seed of Abraham, when we walk over to an a, a offering receptacle and put in our tithes and our offerings, or when somebody passes a plate or a bucket or whatever in the world it is they do, then you, you put that in. You are honoring God with the first fruits of your substance. Don't ever allow somebody to talk you out of that. The, the man or woman that wants you to believe that you can withhold from God and at the same time, Pray and ask God to keep blessing you. That person is deceiving you. That, that person is deceiving you. The scripture says in the Old Testament that is how the Levites were cared for. That's how the poor were cared for. The orphans were cared for. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, they, they brought their offerings and tithes to the church on the first day of the week, Sunday. And that's how they cared for people. And I have a lot of pastor friends who don't want to teach on 
tithing and offering because they, they feel like it's self-serving. doesn't bother me at all. I talk about it all day long. We can go through any scripture that you want to because I, I know that when, when I'm out with somebody else, they don't, mind, they don't mind talking about getting a new truck or a new this or new that. But when it comes to the house of God, everything is important, whether it's paying for lights in a building, whether it's getting food for somebody, whether it's taking care of a minister's salary. I think years ago I did a, a series of messages on why churches can't keep pastors and why pastors can't keep churches. And one of the things I talked about was you, you have uh, churches who get mad at a preacher and they try to starve a preacher out. That's wicked. That's wicked. That's absolutely wicked. We, we, we don't tithe and offer simply because we like a person. We tithe and offer because we love God, see? our relationship with him. Now, if we're ever in a situation where we feel like um, somebody's not doing right, they're not teaching truth, it's going apostate or something like that, that's totally different. Because in ancient times, they only had one temple to give to. But they could never not give because they didn't like the high priest. And they couldn't say, because I don't like the priesthood, I'm not going to give. But it's not like that now in the New Testament. Jesus is our high priest. There are 10,000 churches in every state somebody can go to, give to, do whatever they want to do, parachurch ministries, but your tithe should go to a local church, not to a TV preacher, not to a radio preacher, but to a local church. And your local church where you attend faithfully, make sure they, they get that, that tithe, and then you can give offerings to other people. Now, through the years I've taught this, I'm telling you, I, I, I know I've, I've made a whole lot of Lutheran pastors happy. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I know I have. I, I had a gentleman the other day, he was telling me, he said, you know, I was looking across the heartland at the salaries of ministers. And he said, you know, the uh, Church of Christ ministers, average Lutheran minister, they make about $70,000 a year. For our service, if it's that long, once a week. I said, are you serious? I said, man, we need to turn in our papers now. And I said, we, we need to get in on this. This is a racket. We, we need to get, on, get in on this as quick as we can. But, but here's the thing. <clears throat> when, when, you, when you have a pastor that you love, then bless him. Nothing wrong with that. that that's, that's what this, this thing is all about. Churches can't function without people that are, that are faithful. Okay, let me work on just one more question here, and, and you're really going to love this one. What, what is the meaning of biblical submission? Wow, that's a good one there. Submission. Okay, submission in the Bible is outlined a variety of ways. So I'm going to give you several of them. Romans chapter 13 tells us we should, we should submit to civil authorities. That means you can't just go out and drive as fast as you want on the highways. If it tells you you've got to drive a certain speed limit, that is what you should do. Submit to civil authorities, especially if they're not asking you to do something unrighteous. You know? if, <clears throat> let, let's suppose you were giving, giving John a ride somewhere. You get in the car and you get all buckled up and John decided he didn't want to put on his seatbelt. God forbid that he would be like that. He didn't want to put on his seatbelt. Romans 13, 5 and 1 Peter 2, 13 says, submit to civil authorities. Okay. When the, when the scripture says, 
Even after, or not, not the scriptures, but when the author, civil authorities say, even after you paid off your house and you've got the deed in your hand and you know it belongs to you, and they decide they want to raise your taxes. <laughs> oh, Lord, you still got to pay them. You still got to pay them. Churches and religious organizations have 501c3 status, which means that people can give donations to churches and use those donations as tax write-offs at tax time. But what if the government took that away? See, what if they took that away? Because to be quite honest with you, they didn't have nonprofit status in ancient time. I'm, I'm glad we have it. Don't misunderstand me. I'm quite glad. I'm quite happy that we have not-for-profit status. But I know a lot of churches that have not-for-profit status, and they are for profit. Yeah, they, they sell a lot of things and make a profit. And, and there are people on Capitol Hill that do not know God, and they sit back and dream up ways to, to get that money out of the church because they know them churches they're selling. They're selling them T-shirts, and they got, they got got Deacon Schultz picture on it, and they, they're they selling that, that cup, and it, it, you know, and it, it, it says, you know, have a, have a blessed day, and they're, they're selling this. They're selling fried chicken, Okay. Yeah, they're raising all kinds of money for, for, for different things. Soup suppers to pay this off and that off. And so the government, the, the people, they look at that and they say, wait a minute, you're supposed to be not for profit, but you seem to be for profit. Submit to civil authority. Yeah. We, we can't go out and, and, and just start putting people in headlocks and attacking people because we don't like them. That's one form of submission. Here's another one. Luke 2.51 says Jesus was submitted to Mary and Joseph. That goes along with Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Submission. Children should be obedient to their parents. It's not I'm going to be obedient to my parents when I like them. It should be obedient to parents in all things. Now, to, to, to balance that out, parents should not provoke their children to wrath as the scripture says in Colossians 3, and they certainly should not require their children to do things that are sinful. So Leviticus 19.29 says, mothers should not prostitute their daughters. Yeah. So what, what, what happens when you have somebody who, who's, who's doing that and trying to use scripture to do that? Because believe me, all around this world, there are a whole lot of young girls that are uh, forced into prostitution by their parents. And their parents let people come in and do whatever they want with their daughters because of money. Mm-hmm. You, you say, would that go on in America? You find somebody on crack. I've seen them sell their babies, trade their babies for a crack pipe. Yeah. And, and then these children end up essentially as slaves to whoever the drug dealer is. This stuff goes on every day, folks. So when the Bible says children obey your parents in all things, it is not talking about that kind of a thing. It's talking about things that relate to what's scriptural and holy. Titus 2 verse number 9 says uh, slaves and indentured servants, workers, submit to your masters, your employers. So in ancient times you had a lot of different classes of slavery amongst the Greeks, the Romans, the Assyrians. Egyptians. Uh, doesn't matter whether or not people like the fact that it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's there. 
And <clears throat> amongst the Jews, you had people who were taken captive in war. Then you had people during the seven-year release or year of Jubilee, they would be set free. And some of them would choose to remain slaves. And they would have their earlobes uh, born through with a hole so that their owner or their master could, could continue to have them. They didn't want to go anywhere else. Scripture says here that people should uh, submit. And uh, then it goes on to talk about how the, the employee is supposed to treat the employee and, and not be mean and harsh to them. So all of this is in here. Here's another form of submission. James 4, verse number 7. Uh, Christians, submit yourselves to God. Because we're talking about biblical submission. Ephesians 5, 21. Believers, submit yourselves one to another. That's Ephesians 5, 21. Now here, here's the one that, that everybody loves to, to teach on, spend a lot of time on. It's Ephesians 5, 22. It says, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husband. That just sounds good, doesn't it? The way it just rings in your ear. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. And then as Colossians 3.18 adds, as is fit in the Lord. Okay, so let me work on that. This is a verse that has been used historically to keep a lot of ladies in bondage. A lot of ladies in bondage. Churches somehow still use this verse along with a few other ones, like uh, let the women keep silent and stuff like that, and I don't permit a woman to have any kind of authority over a man and stuff like that. And Timothy, <clears throat> they use those verses to try to keep women from doing anything in the church except for cooking and cleaning. So, so to this day, there are synods and presbyteries that don't permit a lady to vote or voice her opinion about anything. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't agree with it, and I don't think it has anything to do with the Bible at all. It certainly has nothing to do with biblical submission. I'm going to give you the definition of that here after a little while, but I want to work on this side that I think is just just bad uh, with, with all of this. The The scripture in Ephesians says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. Now, that's the thing. They say, okay, your husband, he's like Jesus, so, so you have to submit to him in everything that he says. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Most wives, if they have a husband that acts like Christ, they don't have a problem following at all. Most wives don't have husbands like that, though. Most wives have husbands that act like the devil. Mm -hmm. They're stubborn. They're prideful. They're mean-spirited. It's my way or the highway. This is, all, this, this is the way it's just going to be, and you're just going to have to get in line, and then if it doesn't work out, this is what the man says. Wives, submit yourself. Yeah. Now, you know, you can, you can tease and do that. I, I used to bother Tiffany like that. Yeah, I used to. When we when Tiffany and I, after we'd been married a little while, I'd ask her to do something. She'd say no, and then I'd follow her around the house, and I'd say, Submit. Obey me. Obey me. Just like that. Now, you, you know it didn't get me anywhere at all, you know. When, when I'd wake up the next day with a knot on my head, I just realized that, that that's, not, that's not working at all. 
Okay, so but this has been taken to the extreme. And as a pastor, I've seen this as a as a minister. I've seen this. So if the hubby wants the wife to do something that's unscriptural or against her conscience, he expects her to obey him as fit in the Lord or as unto the Lord. So a woman falls in love with the Lord Jesus. The husband doesn't like the Lord. And so he says, you can't go to church. I don't want you to go to church. And I've seen ladies stop going to church. Because of a husband who doesn't want to go to church. Now, that's crazy to let somebody have that kind of power over your soul. That's not what this is talking about. As is fit in the Lord, in the sense that this is scriptural, to the point that you can follow somebody as they follow the Lord. That's what it's talking about. If somebody's encouraging you to do something that's wrong, you don't, you don't do that at all. You, you've probably known people in decades past who were married to very mean men, and the men would beat the wives, harm the wives, and then, and then the, the wife wanted to leave, and then the people said, well, no, you just, 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 just hang on in there, and, and, and he'll get over this. You know, he'll come around, you know, as if it's some kind of a disease, you know, that, that beating a woman is something you'll get over eventually, you know. No, that, that's, not, that's not submission. Submission is not to tell a woman to stay in the house and duck. That, that's not submission at all. That's, that's not scriptural. A husband does not have that kind of control over his wife where he can control her spiritual condition. Uh, there are also cases where I've been involved where I've seen the, the wives complain that, um, well, my husband doesn't let me do anything with the money, the finances, with... Uh, anything outside the house or something like that. And that's an issue that doesn't have anything to do with this verse either at all. Nothing at all. When Paul is talking about a wife submitting to a husband, he's talking about a headship and leadership, and it has nothing to do with who's going to handle the money. Now, my father left me a very good example, gave me a very good example, and that was he always made... My mom, I shouldn't say me, he let her, she wanted to, he always let her handle the money, pay the bills, finances. What my dad never wanted to happen was what he'd seen happen so many times. Husband handles everything, he passes away, the wife doesn't even know where the bills are, who's supposed to handle them, who's supposed to be paid, don't know what creditors supposed to be taken care of. So I did just like my dad did. My wife has always handled all of that. Now, that's not to say you have to do it. I'm just trying to get you to see that, that, that it's, it's, it's a relationship that, that we have to have. Somebody gave my book, gave, gave my wife a book many, many years ago called Me Obey Him. Oh my, if you ever, you ever seen that book, that, that book, if you ever see it in a secondhand store, that book is worth reading uh, just for no other reason, just to know uh, how, how your wife or how you're not supposed to act as a woman. That book would turn your wife into a slave. And it turned women into slaves. And Tiff, she said, look at this. And I, and I looked at that. I said, oh, get this out of the house as fast as you can. It's the kind of book that's usually written by people who live somewhere in the mountains. Don't believe a woman ought to wear a pair of pants. All the men got beards down to their belt buckle. Everybody's got a garden in the backyard. I think it's a sin to go to the local grocery store and, and that kind of a thing. That, that is not biblical submission. Let me give you a definition of biblical submission. A husband and a wife in holy matrimony and in covenant with God through which he dwells in them as 
as his temple. He leads and guides them with the same kind of headship he expects a husband to lead his wife. That is in accordance with wisdom and godly nature. The Bible says, let a husband dwell with his wife according to understanding. So a husband should get to know his wife. And a wife doesn't lose her personality or her voice because she enters into matrimony. If a man acts like Jesus, lives his life like Jesus, won't be difficult to be the leader of the home. But when a man doesn't want to live like Christ, it becomes very, very difficult. In some settings where I go, we don't have this in any of our churches with our homeschoolers, but uh, some places where I go, the, the homeschool movement is, is filled with Calvinists. Calvinists. Those are people who believe some are predestined to heaven, others are predestined to hell. And they have this idea that, that the only thing a woman is, is for, essentially, is breeding. Have us, you know, yeah, breeding. And so the, the, the wife's responsibility is just to have kids and spend time in the kitchen, and the guys just drink ale and beer and solve the world's problems. Yeah. And, and so my, my wife and I, years ago, we used to, we used to get these tapes from a, from a certain ministry, and they were these big, big uh, leaders in the homeschool movement, and, and I'd put that tape in, you know, driving down that highway with Tiffany there because I knew that, that I mean, pretty soon I knew the hair on the back of her neck was going to just stand straight up. Flashes of lightning going to be appearing in the car. And I'd stick that in. I'd turn that thing up loud while she was sleeping. And I'd just be listening as they're talking about just sitting around and just how, how wonderful it is living out in the, in the country where they are. And they've got a big can of beer and they got wives that love them and they're taking communion in church and if would be ready to kill me. Folks, that's not submission. Submission for a lady does not mean she loses her personality or that her life and her temperament and character is subsumed by the man. It means it's a blended relationship. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were essentially equal. Because of the fall, Man became the head because of the fall, because of the sin. But even with the fall, in Christ, there's no male or female. There's no bond or free. We're equal. The husband is the head in the marriage only in the sense that Christ is the head over the church. But he leads the church gently and through love. That is the way God wants us to live. If we try to do it any other way. It's going to be trouble. Okay, I need to stop. I've gone a little bit longer than I normally do. But praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So you, you, you ladies, you can tell me thank you afterwards. Praise the Lord. Come on, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful for the word of God. Thank you for the liberty that we have in Scripture. You've not called us to bondage or condemnation. Father, thank you for my wife. Thank you for a wonderful relationship with her, with you. How, Lord, you beautify marriages with these ladies. Thank you for the, the character, the temperament, the, the wonderful personality that women exhibit when they are submitted entirely to you. How your glory and your face shines upon them. 
So God, keep us by your grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen.